0: Hopefully we'll be joined also by Justin Norman, a.k.a. Moritat. He is signing at the DC
1: booth, and uh... drawing a sexy cat woman when we tried to get him. It's like, no, it's too sexy, I won't leave. <laughs>
0: um, so, we're going to make him squeeze in there, he comes in. Uh, <laughs> so the idea of this panel, um, I've done kind of similar panels at TCAF last year, uh, the Toronto Comic Art Festival. Brandon and I did a panel with um, Paul Pope and Sam and a big part of the conversation was talking about some particular folks that influenced us or influenced them, not myself. Um, and so I kind of felt like this would be a fun time to do something like that with uh, some creators I really like and kind of jump into it and see what you know, feeds into each of you and kind of bounce off each other in yeah, um, A couple of weeks ago, Brandon actually went down to Portland and kind of had a similar conversation
1: with uh, Mike and uh, Craig Thompson, which uh, we'll have a video Eugene. of Eugene, I'm sorry. This is such <laughs> an elaborate scam for me and Robin to go hang out with our favorite artists. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Um, now, when I was putting this
0: together, uh, one of the things that you said, Mike, uh, really stood out to me is you love to talk about your heroes. Um, and so what do you mean by that, about
2: your heroes, and how are... My heroes are the people that excite me and and inspire me, and when I meet other people that are that I share the same interests with, it's it's it's, it's uh, it it kindles a, a creative flame, and so it, it's I, I think it's a great conversation starter. Like whether it's movies, you know, say mention David Lynch or you know Stanley Kubrick or something or. Uh, music, Bowie, The Beatles, Monty Hall, and it's like, oh yeah, or or if they're like, oh, I've heard them or I've heard this song, and then you say, well, you should hear this song too, and it's the same with comics. I'm like, well, I, these are my favorite artists. Well, then you might like this, and then you should check this out, and it's fun. It's just, I, I think that's the one thing I'm guessing that everybody in this room has in common that we get joy from this, and. The best way to amplify joy is to share it. And so, that, and I guess talking about your heroes is part of that. My heroes are the people that, it, that are artistic people, creative people that get me excited.
0: Do any of you have any particular people you think of immediately that are your heroes, as, as far as cartooning, that really feed
1: into you? Well, when, when we were in Portland, I mean, Mobius certainly came up a lot. Easy. Big time hard to get over, but um, I'm, I'm interested in Nate, What I, I don't know a lot of your influence, because when I first saw your work, it was like, it it brings it so uh, authentic of where you're from, and, and it seemed almost like you're pulling from your real life, and, I, and it wasn't like I picked it up, and I was like, ah, he's
3: looking at Kirby, was, well, I'm interested in, in who, you're, who you're into. Well, uh, I feel that as far as like content. Can you hear them? Oh, yeah. I can barely hear
2: them, I'm sitting right by them. Can yeah, <laughs> we have to
3: get that door closed? Thank is you. This, uh, is this working out okay here? Yeah! Is yeah. It is? Okay, <laughs> okay. thanks. Um, yeah, stylistically and really as far as structure and narrative go, I find myself, or I guess I've always found myself more influenced by novels and movies. Uh, and I feel like I, I tend to view movies in a sequential way where you know I'm not watching static images but really I'm going from shot to shot and scene to scene and absorbing it in a very similar way um, like right before uh, I had a I had a, a baby daughter that was born uh, just for Christmas but right before that I was like gearing up for this big change in life And I wound up watching Terrence Malick's *The Tree of Life*, which, like, I'd I'd heard enough about, but then you know, I was able to kind of keep it on the down low until it was time to watch it. And I I felt such an unexpectedly strong creative kinship, or such a strong vision, with what was trying to, what what was going on with this movie. Yes, Uh, that it took me several days to really process it, and and especially to see a movie that, both on a critical level and personally, you know, like I feel is you know, like, deeply flawed in the best ways, where you can tell it's, it's, uh, it's really an unbridled expression in many ways, and uh, I feel like it really elevated itself to another level by being one of those rare examples of being such an intensely personal project, I assume, that was just taken all the way, complete with its, whatever, its internal errors, or, you know, like... Whatever was going against it, I feel like magnified its its uh, expressive capabilities. But in terms of novels, I feel these days more influenced by like Ray Bradbury short fiction and like Shirley Jackson and Ursula K. Le Guin stories and like Italo Calvino stories than comics. Stylistically, uh, you know, like I feel like John Porcellino and like Michael Golden and Arthur Adams and then Linda Berry and Katsuhiro Otomo Tomo. All, and Gabriella Giandelli all have sort of these equal influences from many, many different, uh, you know, yeah. hemispheres. Yeah, it's interesting. My um,
1: my wife or girlfriend, or whatever the hell she is to me, and married. They're married. married. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she and, and uh, one of my closest friends, James Stokoe, does Orkstein Like the the two of them don't really like the two I hang out with the most, and they don't really pull their influences by comic, from comics, even though they do comics. And uh, it's bizarre to me that, the, I mean, obviously something hit them at a young age where they decided to express themselves through comics, but, like, Marion just reads novels all the time. And, uh, and James, like, <laughs> he has this thing. I, I'll show him a comic. I'll think he's really excited about it. And I'll say, show me the best page.
2: <laughs> and I'll show it to him and he go, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> And I can get him
1: to maybe read, like, one out of every ten comics. And it's just become this horrible game where I'm just like, you know, it's like, what was the old commercials where they tried to get the kid to eat a certain life, yeah. Movie. It's like that. It's the Mikey. Night. I hang out with Mikey. All the time. <laughs> My curse.
3: <laughs> Were there
0: particular works, um, while well you're you know, as a creator, you've developed somewhat and then seen someone and they've kind of changed what you're
3: doing? Oh, I can say definitely yes. Okay, so I grew up mm. in Arkansas, more or less, and when I started really seriously pursuing comics, like outside of like GI Joe and Transformers, the the closest to a true alternative, you know, or or independent comic that I could get in Arkansas for most of my years was you know the original Ninja Turtles, Run, Richard Corbin's Den, anything related to heavy metal. That's about as you know some Michael Zulie comics, but that's as deep underground as you could get in Arkansas, and. Basically, as I got more interested in being in bands and in punk, I, and I stopped reading superhero comics. I was still drawing comics into the mid '90s, but and I was writing zines that were really personal. But it never had never occurred to me that I could draw comics narratives that weren't like essentially like gun and boobs comics or you know some kind of power struggle uh, that I had grown up reading and. Uh, the two comics that fundamentally changed my view of how to tell stories or what's possible um, is uh, after moving to New York City and I was I was at School of Visual Arts studying uh, a friend and zine writer of mine Algerian had a, just a one shot comic that migraine put out called The Long Walk Nowhere um, that was basically about him growing up in the early eighties as a hesher in North Carolina and you know hating his life and walking around and setting things on fire and then being stuck in that same town as a 27 year old in the middle of the night, uh, nothing happened. But uh, that book, combined with Chester Brown's I Never Liked You, uh, just rocked my world. Uh, somebody made me borrow it after class one day. I was like, no, you need to read this today. i was like, okay. So uh, basically, yeah, I like went into the bathroom. I was like, oh, I guess I'll start reading this while I'm on the pot. And and as a side note, I don't normally do that. I'm a very fast pooper, so I just, I just want to lay that out there so you know what you're getting into. If anyone's taking notes, yeah, please, I'm please recording. Do. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and but then all of a sudden, like an hour and a half later, I was still on the pot, and I just finished the entire book, and I was like crying, uh, and uh, it just really rocked me. But also,
2: you like, paint a pretty pretty picture. You know, you know, yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm giving you the complete picture.
3: <laughs> uh, but
2: yeah, like uh, from. Tears and
3: poop. From, from layouts, from like one panel pages that are, where the panel's this big, surrounded in black. You know, these are things I'd never seen that fundamentally changed my own layouts and my own flow uh, to being able to account these. Like the, one of the first scenes in that book was young Chester Brown, uh, you know, like looking around the house wordlessly, trying to find his mom. And then finding her, wordlessly, leading her back to the kitchen, pointing out that he dropped an egg on the floor and that it was broken. And then she was like, oh, you thought I'd be mad about that? And then she just gives him a hug. And so, like, well, I hate to bring this up again, but imagine me sitting on the pot, not expecting this at all. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what? And I just never turned back from that scene. So, yeah, I think
2: Are you okay okay in there? Yeah. (laughs) I had two very distinct eras of influence, subconscious and conscious. Um, Growing up, my older brother had all the the comics that I would later realize were the foundation for me. Kirby, Toad, Hubert, uh, Ditko. I I didn't know who they were when I was a kid, but I loved them. And then later as an adult, um, I found out that the first era ended what I was regularly reading comics, and uh, it ended exactly when Gwen Stacy was killed in Amazing Spider-Man. A huge crush on Gwen Stacy, and so I was done with comic books. <laughs> and being a newspaper boy, I then used my newspaper money buying record albums for years, and then later in adulthood, a friend turned me on to what comic books were doing. And this would have been the mid to late '80s, and one of the in the stack was the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. Was almost at its original end. I think it was eight, issue eight or something. And Mister X, which introduced me to the Hernandez brothers, which then introduced me to Lovin' Rockets, which then introduced me to Dan Klaus and Charles Burns and Chester Brown. Yummy Fur was a so I have I have this intense love of classic comics. And then either went and then went back again to EC Comics. Did a t- total historical drenching. And so I have this appreciation of all unique creators, but specifically being incredibly passionate. Going on everywhere, anytime I'd go to a new town, I'd look in the yellow pages, look for a comic book store, and would obsessively look for things. Mobius books, Yummy Fur was a pilgrimage. Uh, issue number nine was an issue that was was like winning the lottery when I found it in this scrungy little comic shop, you know. And, and the owners didn't even know they had it. But uh, you know the man who wouldn't stop. And, and reading about Chester Brown's um, full consciousness and kind of putting all these pieces out and then finding a really strange way that they all came together. And then his leap into autobiographical comics. So all of these things, if they excite me, then they somehow either consciously or subconsciously, they, they influence me. Ladies and gentlemen.
4: <laughs> is, is this a Chester Brown pal because I think yeah, I'm no. in the wrong <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about hookers oh, okay. that was a segue. one <laughs> All right. I, my name is Justin I work under the name Moritat for DC Comics and I draw a lot of horses
0: <laughs> now, the, the question I just asked before you came in were, was were there any particular comics work that changed
1: what you were doing, like <laughs> mid-career? You can tell what to you? Well, me and Justin always. Uh, Justin is. Uh, I always call him my comic book, my comic book godfather. I used to uh, when I was like what twenty. I used to, I would show up and uh, I met Justin. I I met at a uh, at a comic book store and I was doing separations for Top Cow or something horrible then. And uh, which Steve, comic? What's that? Yeah, which which comic? <laughs> which is, yeah. and, um, and uh, and I met Justin at a comic store, and he was the first guy that I met that was into, like, European comics. And uh, and I just stopped hanging out at the job that was paying me, and just started going to Justin's studio every day, and he was drawing porn. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I would help out on the background sometimes. I remember it was so long ago that he had a picture of Angelina Jolie on his wall, and nobody knew who she was. That's a hack, right? No, I Before. 4 Cyborg 2? Cyborg oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so a, a lot of a lot of me and Justin hanging out has been um, kind of our our interaction about stuff and, and like Manara and and Masamune Shiro has been a huge deal where, where like yes. we always have like holy gra- he'll call me up and we'll talk for like two hours like I saw a new panel I, saw, I found a new panel of his comments on the internet it's from 1991 it's good <laughs> <laughs> oh you want me I to didn't know yes Justin please call.
4: all right which question. <laughs> What what, get, what
2: what what influenced me?
4: Is that? It's <coughs> my first time to jump. How many how many panels have you ditched so far? Uh, um, all of them. I had
1: to do do a comic book battle panel with Justin, and he How'd that go. <laughs> oh, Nate <it made>, panel. <laughs> oh, Nate. No, no? awesome. Okay, it was awesome.
4: Yeah. Do you like drawing what you drew? Was the comedian funny? I was was okay, so <laughs> tell me about the, uh, <laughs> we, we,
0: we could spend a whole panel talking about things that Justin does wrong, but <laughs> Now that you're on the spotlight, Justin, particular works when you're working that really kind of, boom, that that makes me look at things different. Oh,
4: uh, I, I have to think about that one. Um, uh, I, I grew up in Asia, so... I looked at. I, I was reading manga comics, or I was looking at the art. Actually, a lot longer before than I was looking at American comic books. So, coming from a manga perspective or a manhwa perspective back over here, it, it's quite interesting. But uh, one of the people that really kind of opened uh, my eyes was. I, I really wasn't into Kirby's DC phase until later in life. I hadn't read Commandy, I had, had Commandy when I was smaller, but I didn't appreciate it. It wasn't until uh, Brandon started coming around that uh, they had reprinted the what was it, the New Gods in a in a deluxe format. Yeah, I didn't read it until then. I was like 23 or something. And then then looking at it again with fresh and eyes, it's like, oh my yeah. goodness, this is this stuff is amazing. And, and we just pour over it. And now most of my work ethic is based around a, a Jack Kirby, post Marvel, kind of uh, a style. Though though I don't draw like that, but that's that's my work ethic kind of. That your, your work ethic. Yeah, yeah. Does that answer Do you your work question? For Ten hours a day. Uh,
0: sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys still stay up to date? Trying to continuously find new sources, new comics that excite you, new creators. Now I read Brandon Graham comics now.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's I'm, I'm powered by other people's work, and I just constantly am scouring things. And now it's nice because I have a lot of people kind like of mailing me their comics, and I have this obscene pile of to read comics and. It's it always frustrating because I read comics in the bathtub all the time, and uh, and if the comics too nice, then it takes me forever
4: to get to it because I can't put it in the bathtub.
2: <laughs>
4: Could you draw us a picture?
3: What's that? Could you draw us a picture of that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I poop. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, I've sort of been tightening the belt in the last year, so my buying of comics is really. Sort of uh, taking a nosedive, except about every three months, I'll take a venture into the local comic book store specifically to like pick a couple of X titles and uh, see what's happening in Daredevil and catch up on you know certain friends' work. Like it. I was really excited for the Becky Cloon and Brian Wood Conan the Barbarian series to hit, um, and uh, Jeff Lemire's writing work that started an Animal Man that sort of got me excited again about single issues. But, uh, yeah, I feel like in the last couple of months, um, I've taken a big step backwards now that I have to, like, you know, it's, it's time to like read children's books to my baby in the morning. And so there are all these books that I completely forgot were fundamental in my life, and I didn't even know the names of some of them. But getting to finally repurchase the Grouchy Ladybug by Eric Carle. I forgot that this was one of the most fundamental narratives in my life. And uh it was one of the books that I learned to read from and everything. But there was always this uh something that was like as a kid I missed I missed like the forgiveness and the redemption of like the Grouchy Ladybug's friend that's like I don't care if you're an asshole, it's okay, come eat aphids with me. Is that how they word <laughs> it? Yeah, more or less, you know. It's uh but uh, yeah I remember like as a kid sort of touching on like the darkness that this grouchy ladybug has uh, and like the fact that like it's it's always like puffing itself up to fight bigger animals and then they think that the ladybugs a joke and the ladybug starts to get super embarrassed by that so they're like like whatever man like I'm, I'm too you know I'm too tough for you anyway or whatever but getting to read it now as a 33 year old like to me like 7 to 9 a.m. when it's children's book reading time with my baby that's like my new uh, words and pictures influence time yeah. <laughs> no way around it
1: you know well, earlier when you were talking about um, about the idea of stuff that kind of changed the approach to it I, mean, I was just thinking about when I when I got into Bukowski stuff when I was like you know young dude that the kind of dude that's when you're, when you're mad at dad and you're reading Bukowski. <laughs> uh, it really, um, it, like him and, and, and Ernest Hemingway, definitely, you know, the kind of cliché dude authors, they, they both really affected me because they, like once you get past the, the personas, I think the work's really quality and it's kind of, they almost have different personas underneath that. And, and uh, what really affected me about his short stories is he didn't, they didn't have a story structure, they were just end. There's a line he, he put in one of them that says um, the night just kept coming and there's nothing I could do to stop it and I, I think about that line a lot when I when I write because you can just stop stuff whenever I remember once I did a short story I, for a while I was going into vertigo every week and trying to pitch stuff it worked out fantastically for me <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, I would call them up and say can I come in and show you pages and uh, I, and I would do a story just a short story just to show them and. Uh, I did a five page story and I called them up and one time they, they weren't able to see me. And so it became a ten page story because I was like, ah, I can just extend it. And just that, that attitude of, of of just kind of kind of treating it like life where it doesn't there's not an end where the credits roll it's just you are showing scenes of, of, of you know things that you can relate to personally. Mike, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about
0: staying up to date or just continuously feeding with new stuff.
2: Yeah, I well it, it's an interesting point in your career when all of a sudden you start getting these comp boxes. These huge boxes with everything in them. Must be tough. It's, it's, it's phenomenal, and, um, but then what you find is uh, the jewels that kind of you go through the stack, and there'll be something that'll you know, pop out at you, um, either, obviously, for, first it's the art that's going to get your attention, and or maybe somebody has said something you know, like like Joe Keating will say, "Oh, have you read this yet?" You know, and you've got one of those friends like you know like Justin at Brandon like, like hey look at this Kirby stuff. Uh, it's like that word of mouth thing. You know, that's, that you got to see this movie, you got to listen to this album. It's the same thing with the, the comics. And so either if you didn't get it in your comic box and you're rushing to the comic shop because somebody you respect is excited about it. And so you're hunting it down, and, and either you're like, ah, oh, it's not my thing, or oh, she was right, he was right, this this kills, this is great, and then you look for other stuff they did, and um and it it filters through, and then you either enjoy it on a, uh, you know, on an intellectual level or an artistic level, or it becomes an actual influence in your own work, and it it's never that has never stopped for me that so it's a constant there's always something that i'm getting excited about it often it's older stuff too so there'll be something new but there might be somebody like i said earlier when kirby was part of my childhood but then later as an adult rediscovering him and you know marvel masterworks coming out and and you're all of a sudden it's all available to you when as a child you might have and stops and starts of the work here—it's all available to you, and you get pulled into it. And like the Galactus trilogy, for instance, is just—it's magic for me to, to think that human beings made this happen and created these icons. And and I see that happening, you know, uh, with new generations too. Our, our mutual friend Craig Thompson, for instance, you know, just blows me away. When I first met Craig, he was the designer on one of my Dark Horse books and um, he tells me I was like the first person he showed his rough uh, blankets to and now I'm looking look at him and where he's gone and what he's doing and he's like best pals with with Maurice Sendak for crying out loud.
1: I yeah, just thrown that in our faces. I know.
2: I, I, I gotta go back to you saying with Maurice. Uh, Maurice uh, oh, Maurice who? <laughs> oh, Maurice Sendak. Yeah, you
1: don't know I hang out with Maurice Sendak all the time. He's a gold toilet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: he, he did this book called Where the Wild Things Are. It's, it might have yeah. heard. And they just slapped us. <laughs> but, but it's exciting. I, I love seeing that happen. Um, and coming to shows like this, you walk down and stuff ooh, I gotta see what that is, I gotta see what that is, it's exciting. There's something about like, the kind of like a life energy from comics.
1: Absolutely. I was saying one of the things that's, that's been important to me is that um, I always felt like the guys that were really exciting to me, a lot of the guys that were kind of, the reason I do comics aren't really represented. It's like when people talk about, I always call it the two-party system, it's like, you can, it's like kind of the Art Spiegelman side, and it's into like 8-Ball and the kind of graphic stuff, and then you have the kind of Watchman side. And and I was got into comics, you know, through a lot of the manga and European stuff, you know, Mobius and Shiro or whatever, and uh, and so I just I, I really want to talk about all the time about about how those guys are, are and, and and it's made me kind of be more forgiving of other heroes, other people's heroes, and kind of feel like everybody needs their own kind of creator, you know, they, we all need our heroes and our own kind of pantheon of people we look up to. It's really interesting
0: with you, Brendan, because specifically you. Stuff you enjoyed when
1: you, when you were 11 is still so permanently etched in your head. I had a friend call me up who was my neighbor when I was like 8 or 11, and he was telling me, he was trying to shame me with this story, and he was like, I remember one time, you made me take the bus for an hour to go to the comic store to get an anatomically correct dirty pair doll, and while he's telling me this, I look over at my wall and I have like dirty pair pages cool. of <laughs> 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 so, yeah, nothing, nothing's changed. Nothing's
0: changed. <laughs> I'm going to throw some names out of uh, specific creators and just hear what you guys think of that person's work or kind of how that's kind of jumped through with you. you. Uh, one person you mentioned earlier uh, was Alex Toad. Like, um, was that someone any of you, other folks, have gotten into? Like Toad you, Justin? Come on, Justin. Come up a little bit.
4: <laughs> I like Toad. <Joe. laughs> <laughs> About it. Uh, yeah I, uh, what is there to talk about oxtofa that hasn't been talked about, so um he was kind of grouchy, which was kind of interesting, and in the latest book um his daughter his daughter mentioned that she, she was going to introduce him to antibiotic or not antibiotics, antidepressants, um and he said, no, I don't need them." and so that that was. Kind of interesting. That's my my talk kind of that's where I've been thinking about it lately. And his lettering is the most beautiful in, mm-hmm. in comics. So
1: I, I think about talking kind of a sad way though because he's so his work's so beautiful and it's so um, impressive but he did so few so little personal work. Yeah. And it's almost like a it feels like a loss to me.
3: Well we, that we, that's what makes it more like uh, it takes on almost an archaeological significance when you look through his stuff because uh, yeah basically seeing what it, you know if it's the 1950s, it's, you know, it's hack work, it's your job, right. and he's drawing the shit out of these pages, but it makes you sort of, like, mine and comb these pages for the things, like, the things that are personal, that are, that are shining through, like, these romance or detective comics. Um, I was basically oblivious to his work, uh, or it was oblivious to the fact that I had been exposed to it throughout life until yeah. I was about 20, and I was taking an inking class, uh, and all of a sudden... He got thrown in my face as just this master of clean, rich black spaces, and uh, I think he single-handedly convinced me that uh, basically everything I was doing up until that point was based on insecurity and fear, and uh, and actually that allowed me to bounce, you know, like to bounce back again to earlier in adolescence and sort of see what you were doing. Uh, with Madman and everything and and really appreciate the economy of line and, and certain a certain patience. Uh, but yeah, I feel like his his appreciation of black areas. And I guess approaching panels by inking black spaces first and then going to contours after the shadows were done, which is absurd. Right. Uh, but it's yeah, it sort of like turned my concept of what to do with positive and negative space
2: on its head. Well I, I still pinch myself. I um, I'm not going to assume everybody knows who Alex Toth is, he's best known for creating Space Ghost, but he, he was a workman who did dozens and dozens of obscure stories that are largely out of print, but if you find them, they're just brilliant. And um, But he mentored me uh, early, right as I was just coming out of the gate, uh, he was exposed to my work, and. Um, Somebody told me that he liked my stuff and gave me his phone number, and I uh, and his address. I sent him some of my stuff. Got up and famously, uh, 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 very bad temper. Um, And uh, there's stories of him throwing people into swimming pools and knocking tables over. And um, so I sent my stuff, and it took me at least. Probably close to two weeks before I got the courage to call him up, and um, when I called him up, he answered the phone, which was a rare thing, and I told him who I was, and there was this excitement in his voice, and he said, "Yeah, I just sent you. Well, I uh, uh, I, I just sent you a picture. Like, oh, well, I was going to ask you to do a. At the time, I was making Madman trading cards and asking different artists to. He says, so I'll do one of those for you too," and. Um, and then from then on, we had this correspondence, and I would always send him my new work, and he would always, uh, either on the phone or with one of his letters, which are always, again, the lettering is just magical and organically rich and distinct, and often with little doodles. And um, i talking about economy of line, and if it doesn't need to be there, then don't draw it and um, it was priceless. But I was also one of those people that got the, the bad side of Alex. What I would do was, I would keep a FedEx box. Um, he would ask his friends, he rarely left his house. One time we visited his house, he lived in the, the hills that overlooked, um, it's a really interesting architecture, his neighborhood, um, where the garages would be down on the street and you'd walk these stairs, was even an elevator, an outdoor elevator, that would take you to the top. And it overlooked the Hollywood Bowl. So if you sat on Alex's roof, you could watch a show at the Hollywood Bowl. And um, went to his house once, he an- answered the door, barrel-chested guy, shirtless, white shorts, <coughs> you know, <laughs> piles of books all around. Um, but a really rich relationship. But he wanted his friends, because he rarely loved his house, to send him treats. He had some friends that would uh, do his grocery shopping. What he wanted from me, living in Oregon, there was these specific prunes that he liked, these uh, certain kind of peanuts. He actually wanted me to uh, send a certain brand of cigarettes, and he had a horrible cough, and Alex, no, I'm not going to send you cigarettes, but with this FedEx box over the month or however it took me to do a new book, I would fill it with these treats that I would send to Alex. And, then the, the book would come out, I would put it in there, and I'd send it to Alex, and then have, we would talk about the work. Well, one time, having little kids, I some small change ended up in the box. And a few nickels, pennies. I got a phone call, you think I need your money? You think I need your charity? What? What happened? bunch of blanket nickels and pennies in this box. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't, what is that? Never heard from him again. Didn't respond to any of my, he must have had a caller ID because he never answered his phone. Nothing ever, it was silence until his death. and I felt horrible about it and would never tell anybody. Uh, it was like, well, every, people People are impressed that Alex Toke likes my stuff, I mean, blurbs and nice reviews, things he'd always say nice things. And it was shameful to admit that now Alex hates me. And then, after he died, there was a tidal wave of stories, just like mine, (laughs) where people that he loved and treated with loving generosity, he then just cut them off, including his children. And um, so that made me feel better. But. I really do, that, that, that was just a primal experience for me in my early development in my career, and I cherish it and I love him to pieces. And um, it, obviously I could go on and on and on with my experiences with him, but if you're not familiar with Alex Telt's work, there are books coming out now, finally, that are worthy of, of the, the history he represents in beautiful volumes, so Google it, go to your comic shop, Find anything you can with Alex Tok because if you wanna learn pure simple economical storytelling, um, Alex is one of the, the best. So I'd I recommend his Hot Wheels series. <laughs> <laughs> That's no joke. It's serious, it's amazing. Hot Wheels is an adaptation of the toys. Cool stuff. D C comics, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Frank Frazetta. Brandon. Um uh, when you think, say that um, there's this there's this old uh, there's this 80s graffiti documentary that I'm obsessed with but I can't remember the name of I'm the the What's that? it oh, Sorry. Um, there's this there's this um, painting with fire is it wild style or something anyway there's there's the uh, 80s graffiti documentary that follows all these graffiti writers right? and there's a, the one armed graffiti writer named Case and um, he goes up to a Beastmaster poster and he, and he points at the eye and the girl and he goes, "What's that? Bombode and who? Frank Frazetta." <laughs> and I, I love that like kind of graffiti, graffiti it's like these graffiti guys living in New York, like they're into their heavy metal magazine and, and uh, you know and, and when Bombode was in, I guess he was in heavy metal too, and, and so it's, it's like he's one of those guys like Frazetta. I'm kind of influenced by his influences. Oh man, don't get me
2: started. <laughs> uh, Fred, there, there's this hierarchy, you know, Frazetta's Fris, up there. Just, uh, he's one of those guys that I, it's, if you try to imitate it, it it's painful. You can't, it's, it's just, it's Frazetta. I mean, you can, but it's, it, it's you're going to suffer for trying. But um, just, just a magical moment at a show, one of, of Frank's rare appearances. I'm with Frank Miller, of all people. Frank Miller introduces me to Frank Frazetta, which gets Frank to think, well, I might be worth his time. And I'm not shy. Hey, Frank, would you do a Madman picture for me? Absolutely. And I got one. It's, uh, it's, it's heaven. Just love it. Oh, and he was, at this time, he was only penciling. And when it came time to uh, uh, check up and see if it was done yet, he told me that he had so much fun with it that he went ahead and inked it, and it's got some nice washes on it and everything. So it's just pure joy. Justin? Oh, you're okay. Yeah, talk
4: Justin. <laughs> talk, talk about Frank Fazetta. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about Frank Fazetta that I, I found, again, re- revisiting an artist, is um, you, you read about how he almost uh, was a professional baseball player. And what's fascinating? Well, help me out here. <laughs> what, what, what was fascinating about that is the, the physicality and the the action that you see in in his art translates into that. So I started kind of taking better care of myself as well, um, doing things and, and you know because most artists. Go through a stagnant period where they kind of draw and they get really involved with drawing because the art starts to look like what you want it to look like. But then you're eating Cheetos and you've got a case of Coca Cola next to you and you're in a basement and you're sleeping 16 hours a day. And the interesting <laughs> thing about Fazetta, well, we know some of those people, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about Fazetta was he was very uh, a physical person. Yeah. I mean, you would look at Toth, and, you know, you'd be kind of hunched over, and, you know, Jack Kirby would have a cigar. But, you know, here's Frank Fazetta with, the, you know, a tight T-shirt standing next to Clint Eastwood, and he's... James Dean. Yeah, 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 and he's on a motorcycle. He's on a Harley Davidson. You're like, is, is that legal if I want to be a comic book artist? <laughs> so that, there's my Frank Fazetta piece right there, and if you want to hear the hooker story, catch me after the, the, the <laughs> panel. So.
3: How can you follow that? Well, fortunately, yeah, I I'd only have a very loose, you know, sequence of the influence by him, and most of that has to do with being like a young Hesher being exposed to a lot of stuff. His artwork, uh, illustration-wise, more than you know, comics or anything, being a part of it, but I don't have a specific tale to account for it. That's okay. It's all right.
1: Take your shirt I um, I I almost I almost got to meet Frizzetta once, but uh, or I was, was said I was I went to. Um, I got to meet Ralph Bakshi, who did uh, you know, Fire and Ice with him, and uh, it was really exciting for me because I, I grew up on Bakshi's movies, and uh, more of a Bakshi story than, but he, he, he told me that he was going to uh, introduce me to present everything I moved, but, but anyway, the story was that I walked in to meet Bakshi, and he, the first thing he said to me was, he came out of the, the bathroom and said, I just threw my back out in the crapper. <laughs> Actually, thing he could possibly say. Could start to see a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> Rosetta is
2: mostly known for his paintings. Uh, again, we're, we live in a, an amazing time. So much of this work, which was so hard to find when I was first trying to find it, is readily available. There's a beautiful edition of Rosetta's comic book stories in a beautiful hardcover, oversized edition. In fact, I think it's called Rosetta's Comic Stories. And um, like he did a story for Easy Comics called Squeeze Play where this guy kills his girlfriend or wife on a roller coaster and then goes to the beach to hide out while the cops are running around. And these cute girls drag him out into the water and he's splashing in the waves, you know, hiding from the cops. The I mean, girls take him deeper and deeper, the guy doesn't know how to swim, so the last panel is him just dead underwater. But uh, it, it's a brilliant story, and the artwork is just raw. It, I mean, it's as crisp and perfect, as and beautiful as art can be. But it's got that uh, physicality to it, and that where yeah. um, it, 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 it's just—he's running from murder It's sensual, and, and um, ah, he, he's just great. If you're not familiar with his stories, you gotta look at this stuff. If you love comic books, his comic book. So the light art is every bit as good as this paintings. I
0: think I'll open up some questions. Um, please
1: come use the mic if you can. No one has questions. Oh, we got one guy. Uh,
4: talking so much about who your actual heroes are, um, how do you guys react
3: when you're at conventions and people come up to you and tell you the same thing? like They've been inspired by you. They, you know view you as sort of the hero I mean like I mean, how, how do you react
4: to that because I mean we're all just creating comics we're all just you know it's kind of a friendly atmosphere how do you deal with that moment where you've influenced the industry so
0: much that fans are actually coming up to you and saying you know you're an inspiration to me like,
2: you know, that's never happened come <laughs> on <laughs>
1: I to joke that I'm, I'm I'm good at killing any hero worship. Like, <laughs> my, my, friend, uh, my friend James Dogo is Zorgstein. Well I met him like googling my own name and he listed me as his favorite artist. And uh, <laughs> um, I, I eventually I bullied him into moving in with me and being my roommate. And now he just abuses me constantly. And I'm <laughs> like you remember remember back when you remember when everything was beautiful and you loved me? And he's like, that was a lie. <laughs>
2: That's
1: where I want you But but on another level also like it, it does kind of raise the bar of how you treat the the medium for me. When I when I see people uh, basing or getting excited about my work and basing anything they do off my work, cause it, it's a responsibility. I remember the first time, like a teenage girl came up to me at a convention and said, "I, I learned to girl I wanted to draw girls by looking at your stuff." And I was like, "Jesus Christ, we need to find <laughs> you some better work to look at." <laughs>
2: Is anybody familiar with uh, Jay Stevens? Uh, he he was the first artist who. Acknowledged being influenced by me, and that was incredibly flattering because I loved his stuff. I love his stuff. He uh, kind of moved into animation, did less and less comic book work, but it was so flattering to see somebody so good thinking that I, you know, moved them in some way. It, it, it's it's profound.
3: My answer to that is in terms of the creative communities that we live in. Um, I've been publishing comics for 20 years, but I've also been a part of sort of the punk subculture for about that long. And until I started regularly going to comic book conventions, the first one I really went to, besides like in the basement at like the Ramada Inn in Little Rock when I was 13, uh, was the Mocha Festival in 2003 in New York. But up until that point, you know, like I was writing you know, back and forth with pen pals and people who were in bands and doing zines and comics within the punk framework, I was touring a lot and making music and trying to sell comics that way, but I definitely had uh, a certain arrogance about not only like an ethical and political framework that was holding this perceived community of creators together within punk with their music and with their art, but uh, a lot of it was just you know being in your early twenties or something. I just presumed uh, that I was since I was also kind of on the outside of comics, but comics were so central to my life. Um, it wasn't sour grapes, but I just assumed that the comics world existed free of any of these wonderful personal, creative, and you know, and political ties, almost, or like even a just a a political sensibility to the way people do business with each other and and, uh, and create together until I finally started going to Mocha and TCAF and, and SPX in these places and very quickly uh, I just realized what an ass I had been by just assuming that uh, it was existing outside of these, uh, these frameworks so to me dialogue and feedback gener- uh, inspiring each other back and forth was something that was central and that remains central to my life like within punk, you know, like uh, having bands change your life and becoming friends with those people, and then either starting to make music with them or just becoming pen pals, etc. Uh, but now that all my illusions are gone, and I feel very, very much part of comics as a family and a community, uh, I feel like yeah, there's not. It's not like there's pressure or anything. If someone you know says that you deeply inspire them or something you did moved them, because it's just as likely you know like. All of us are fans, and so when we get here, everyone has a list of people that they want to see. Everyone has the folks who they want to finally say, like, you changed their life or whatever. So I feel like there's a, there's a very healthy reciprocity here that that uh, you know helps engender and maintain that sense of community.
1: Right. It's, I guess it's, it's really good to remember waiting in line and being too excited to talk to someone. Yeah, yeah. poor Adam Warren sitting across from me. <laughs> <laughs> I just went over and told him all the panels of his I've been tracing because <laughs> <that> was 10
0: <laughs> any more questions? yeah of course. come up to the mic so everyone can hear you Either of you two right there oh. <laughs> let's swear to <vest. laughs> thanks alright uh, I'm a little new to the comic world and I'm just wondering how you guys from when like you were children kind of like evolved in the little comic atmosphere and how you like knew like this is what I want to do this is what I'm going to do like how did
4: you practice? Like, how do you just get to where you are now from like the very, very beginnings? Oh, this this is an interesting. Uh, what you have is an interesting question, and this is something Robin and I kind of have kind of talked about, though we haven't really gotten into it. Um, what keeps me going is actually monthly comics. Um, they come out regularly, so. You don't have a choice, you know. Um, sometimes, you know, especially now that I'm I'm older, I don't find myself going into a comic book shop or or Seven Eleven or anything like that. So, you lose you lose a certain um, like if 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 an issue of um, stain doesn't come out for a while, you you know, there's so many things to to occupy your attention anymore. It's harder to 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 look at comics and and be. Enthusiastic about it, unless you have monthly ones. And if the monthly ones are horrible, at least they're still coming out. They're being the stores, the retail stores are being sustained by people coming into them. And somebody that you know, like Brandon, will constantly say, "Hey, you know, um, here's this new comic. You should take a look at it. You should look at this. You should look at that." So I think you should be encouraged to look at it, as much stuff as possible and absorb as much as you possibly can. Um, does that does that answer your question, kind of? No. Yeah, I think so. I oh. mean,
0: I don't know. Right now, I'm just a kid who likes to draw a lot. Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean, it helps looking at people and just seeing,
4: like, I don't know, how cool you guys are. But, you know. I'm I'm really cool, but I don't know about these
2: other guys here. So, <laughs> is this <laughs> a profession? You want to do this as a profession? Well, um, like
0: uh, yes. right, right now. <laughs> yes. I, yes. I, I, the cool that I'm naturally pretty good at because I've been doing it and then I'm just working with some friends and we just like to toss things around but I just, I don't know. I'm not really sure what...
1: I think maintaining that, that moment this, of just like... Just kind of like staying a kid drawing comics. Exactly. Like something that I, I fight for constantly. Like, Like if I start to feel too professional I'll have to like start drawing on my like, desk it, you know, start drawing on the floor in front of, like, <laughs> science fiction cartoons or something. Because, like, as soon as it starts to act like a job,
2: then, then we are done. I actually, at this point, have to curb my enthusiasm because I annoy people because my enthusiasm is just off the charts. It's what keeps me going. I feel like a, a, I still have the same feeling of that joy of drawing. And this, I know this sounds pie in the sky and naive, but if you love doing it and you can hang on to that love of doing it you'll keep doing it you keep doing it you get better at it. when you get better it's more fun because you enjoy watching the progress and it's a cycle so you, you just you're that 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 passion to when you see that oh that's how you make that line that's how you make that texture that's how you make that emotion work that's how that story is told it, it, it's layer upon layer upon layer and it, it builds with just I I could never imagine retiring from this profession, because it's what I enjoy doing. I'd like to slow down a little bit, because monthly comics is a, is a discipline, but it's an awesome discipline, because it, it, uh, it again, it's like, ah, ah, you just want to be productive, and, and, you, and, and the more productive you are, the faster you see that progress.
4: Can I ask you what your last job was before you became a professional comic book artist? He
2: asked yeah. asked his last job was before he came. Yeah, I had career before comics. I, w- I was uh, a TV reporter in Europe.
4: So, <laughs> so I, I could see you doing that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, um, the last story I, I worked on was interviewing East German refugees after they jumped over the Berlin Wall. And then the wall came down, Christmas, New Year's, hugging with Germans, and we'd come back to the States. Because I got this, (laughs) I got a contract. Uh, Steve Siegel, who I knew in Colorado Springs, I taught television production at the Air Force Academy. Um, He was the first comic pro I met. First, second pro I met was Will Eisner in Germany. He was promoting a a documentary called Comic Book Confidential, and he followed my work. You'll find that, uh, at least in my experience, every comic book creator is interested in watching you progress. We want to see good work. So um, don't be afraid to maintain a contact. Go to the shows and, hey, remember me? And if they don't remember you, don't be offended. But just keep getting under their nose and you know, get, keep getting that, that feedback. But I got this contract, thanks to Steve Siegel, and I was writing a screenplay. And, when, and this is when I got turned on to comic books uh, again as an adult. And I was like, oh, I'll draw my movie. And instead of worrying about financing whatever, all I needed was a piece of paper, man. And so I drew my movie and sent it out and got a publisher, Slave Labor Graphics. And first thing I did was a horribly illustrated graphic novel called Dead Air. But it's my starting point. I look at that and I, and, and I measure everything from there. And it's just that desire to get better and, and always feeding on all these other creators that light you up and get you excited. And there was a scary moment when we pulled up stakes and left coming back to the States with this 12 issue contract for a company called Kimiko, which went bankrupt, four issues in, and it was sink or swim. I had no idea how to, to get work from Marvel or DC. All I knew was that this little publisher was going to publish me, and they were paying me. And all of a sudden, they stopped paying me. And it was either try to find another broadcasting job or keep going. keep going. And, and I kept going. And, but the discipline there was I wrote and drew my own work completely independent, you know, lettering it. And then Laura started coloring it when we got our first uh, color book. And so when I have now worked with Marvel and DC and Dark Horse whoever, um, I have that discipline, that foundation of knowing that if I have to, I know every aspect of the art form.
3: On on that note, I just want to say that I think the the sheer accessibility of the medium uh, is one of the strongest things going for it on any level uh, as creators. Like uh, basically, you know, I started reading and reading comics when I was three. I started drawing when I was three, but it wasn't until I was twelve that I met up with you know two brand new best friends who had who were veterans, they'd been like, working on a comic for two years since fifth grade <laughs> or whatever, but one of them just posed a question to me it was like, or didn't pose a question, but basically it was like, we should do a comic together I was like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Uh, and our discipline wound up like we, we cranked up 200 pages in a year and a half using a couple a lot of original characters but a couple of Marvel characters before we realized that if we did all of our own characters, we could actually like, use this Sort of abandoned photocopy machine that was in my dad's office, and uh, you know, like it was people. So many people had had self-published comics before, but we were discovering for the first time, you know, that you could copy and assemble a comic, and it would wind up on a shelf, and at least someone would see it. It exists. So, so yeah, I feel like uh, having at, le- at least one person around who wants to do it with you is is really. Really important, but just the sheer accessibility of sitting down with paper and a pen makes it sort of a no fail situation. You're going to finish the comic and you're going to photocopy it, and you will have a comic. Yep. There we go. Thank you, gentlemen. We are, I think, way over time. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) I (laughs) was (laughs) trying (laughs) to watch the time on that to see where we are standing.